This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. It's election day on The Drive, where I've been spending all day long thinking about who I'm going to vote for. I'm looking up and down the ballot, and there are some tough decisions for me, man. But I think I'm decided, so I'm going to share with you who I'm voting for. As the preseason favorite for the ACC basketball this year. Hey, 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 hey. In all seriousness, I voted early. And if you're registered, try your best to get out and vote today. I'm also serious that I filled out my ACC basketball preseason ballot a short while ago. I got it submitted in. They're going to announce the all-ACC teams preseason and the predicted order of finish next week. And while I was filling out that ballot, words Leonard Hamilton had for me on this show a few months ago have really stuck with me. These were those words. Now, Josh, you tell your listeners, don't sleep on the Seminole. <laughs> what they say, you know, I was telling our players the other day, we don't die, we multiply. So we <laughs> we, 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 we got a good team, Josh. Don't sleep on the Seminoles. Along with the Who's, I'm viewing Florida State as co-favorites in the league this year. I feel better about them than I do Duke and Carolina, and I feel they should be treated as the defending champs that they are. Think about how much they have coming back. Florida State, they're all about strength in numbers. The way that Kevin Keats and NC State want to run it, and Keats has even told us this in past visits, Florida State has done for the last six or seven years. Talking about 10 guys playing an average of 10 minutes a game across an entire season. I think FSU had 11 of those guys last year. Seven of them come back, including three starters. That's especially important this year when you're talking about a pandemic where if one of your guys has it, or God forbid, two or three, what's that going to do to your group? Florida State has the unique ability to recover from that. And a lot of guys back who expect the win because they did it a year ago. And they might have the best player in the ACC this year. Scotty Barnes. See, we spent a lot of time talking about Duke's one-and-done recruiting, and they got nice kids. Jalen Johnson this year comes to mind. I think about Jeremy Roach and DJ Stewart. Those are going to be really good players for the Blue Devils. In North Carolina, how long have Tar Heel fans been talking about this specific recruiting class? Tar Heels are back. Roy Williams knows how to recruit. Here are all the McDonald's All-Americans that we have. We have four of those. Five stars left and right. This is the year of it. Well, neither of those recruiting classes in Durham or Chapel Hill have a player that's ranked as high as Scotty Barnes is. He's going to be a tremendous player. Versatile guard. He's big. He's long. He's athletic. Look at the highlights. He's going to be tremendous. A force to be reckoned with in addition to the guys I referenced who are coming back. West Durham. We, we joke that he's the mayor of the ACC. He hates when we call him that from the ACC network. But he has he's as plugged in as anybody on things ACC-related, specifically basketball. And listen to the way he describes Scotty Barnes on our show. I've had more basketball people tell me about Scotty Barnes in the offseason, and not that he's going to be this, 
but the only other player in the last handful of years that I've heard as much about or more is Zion. So seven players back have played 10 minutes or more last year, three starters among them. Scotty Barnes, who's getting compared to Zion in terms of the hype surrounding him. And plus, we should be accustomed to this by now. Five years. Five years Florida State has played like a blue blood in the best conference in college basketball. Just look at some of these numbers. The numbers should speak for themselves. Tied with Duke and Auburn for the best non-conference win percentage in the country. Second best home court win percentage, 95%. The only ACC schools in the last five years with a better record than the Seminoles. UVA and Duke. Florida State has had a better ACC record than the Tar Heels the last five years. Florida State, they're playing like a blue blood. And they have the recruiting talent, too. It's not just Scotty Barnes. He's not a one-off. Next year's recruiting class, they have the number one class across the country. So the words Leonard Hamilton had for me months ago resonate, and I'm putting it to you right now. Put some respect on Florida State's name. Don't sleep on the Seminoles. I have Virginia as the number one team in my ACC poll, but... Florida State second, and I view them as co-favorites to win the ACC this year. On Twitter at ACC, not ACCSports.com, you can find my ACC rankings there. I mean, AC, uh, at Sports Hub Triad, you can follow us. If you have thoughts on my ballot, my ACC preseason men's basketball ballot, 336-777-1600 is a way for you to chime in on today's show. There are only two athletes, Robert, I've been accused of loving so much that I'd lobby to bear their children. You can correct me if I'm wrong, if there's somebody I'm forgetting, but Zion and Cam Newton, those those are the two guys I, I've been accused of loving so much that, yeah, I'll, I'll be their baby daddy somehow, some way, scientifically. I feel like you're creeping there with Teddy Bridgewater, but I don't want to say anything and upset Cam or Zion yet. So. Okay, thank you for doing that. But while that's the case, I've always prided myself for my ability to separate emotion from how I see things that I cover. And with Cam, it's really bad right now. The last three weeks have been brutal. And as much as I'd hate for this to be the case, I think we're watching the end of Cam Newton's career right before us. If you think that sounds cold or extreme, let me explain. Talent was never the concern with Cam. Never. We know he's a special physical specimen unlike anything we've ever seen at the position. But the concerns that we've had are that of durability and consistency. After the Seattle game where everybody's praising Cam, he's back, he's Superman, we had Dr. David Geyer, the renowned sports orthopedist on, who graduated at Wake Forest University. And he was talking about his concerns with Cam, and it's his shoulders' durability, not that he'd be able to hold up in weeks one, two, three, and four. He was more concerned about how's it going to look in the middle weeks of the season and moving forward. And I don't know if Cam's shoulder is hurt, but I do know this. This is the third straight year we're dealing with a mediocre Cam Newton in the middle of a season. The first two are with health, 
And now he's got COVID, which I'm not blaming Cam Newton for, but the post effects of it are leading to him playing poorly while we've seen other guys bounce back better. The shoulder two years ago, which is two years removed from the surgery he had, last year it was the foot, of course, and now he's just playing mediocre football. But this is the bigger reason why I think we might be seeing the end of Cam. It's simple supply-demand economics. I don't know if you had supply-demand economics when you were in high school at North Davidson, Robert, but that's something I learned when I was a junior in high school. Pretty simple to understand the prices of things when you look at how much supply there is versus the demand of it. In the NFL, demand for quarterback is at an all-time low. Now listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying the position has been devalued. Of course, you can't win if you don't have a quarterback of a certain type of caliber, a certain baseline of quality. But the reason demands at an all-time low is because there are more good quarterbacks than any other point of my life watching football. Any other point of my life, I don't remember there being this many good quarterbacks. And I think the reason that is, it's a couple things. QB 11, quarterback camps, specialization, the way that high school athletes are prepared, and heck, even before that, that by the time they step on a college campus, they're ready to run things the way Sam Howell did with North Carolina last year and Trevor Lawrence at a higher level with Clemson and what we saw from DJ Uwe Angalale this past weekend, pterodactyl freak type stuff where he's throwing for 300 yards, four touchdown passes, and running for another that's, it's it's wild how prepared these quarterbacks are as true freshmen nowadays. So that's number one. By the time they get to the NFL, hey, there's a lot more guys of quality who can play in this league. The way things have been tailored towards college offenses affect things as well, making things easier for the quarterbacks. The rules have changed as well where quarterbacks are better protected. That's obviously something you that plays a role. But I think the biggest factor of all, leading to the demand being at an all-time low, We've widened the criteria for what a franchise quarterback can look like. It wasn't that long ago, 10, 15 years ago, that the quarterback everybody wanted was Peyton Manning. It was Tom Brady. That was the quarterback. Statues in the pocket. The theory was if you had a running quarterback, oh, that's good for maybe a year or two like Michael Vick or Donovan McNabb, but you can't really have these guys be your franchise quarterback for a long period of time. That has now changed because of Cam Newton. Now, it isn't to say there weren't other great running quarterbacks. Randall Cunningham comes to mind, Warren Moon to a degree. But Cam Newton changed things. Russell Wilson has changed things. But... It isn't even just running quarterbacks that have affected it as well. Look at the way these quarterbacks are built now. It used to be if you were less, if you were shorter than six foot two, you weren't going to get drafted in the first round. No chance. No chance. You're pushed to the third like Russell Wilson was. You're you're pushed down to the bottom of the first round into the second round like Drew Brees was. If you're shorter than six foot two, if you're small like Kyler Murray is. You're not drafted first overall. That's changed because of Drew Brees and because of Russell Wilson. That's how Baker Mayfield goes number one. That guy's not a first-round pick 10 years ago. 
Lamar Jackson, he probably doesn't get drafted. If he does, he's a wide receiver. So a lot of holes have been filled by just demand being low. When you look across the league, Robert, how many teams do you feel confident saying right now need a quarterback that Cam could play for if it's not New England? Because I doubt the Patriots are going to go through this again. They have money, but they're not going to pay more for Cam after performances like this. They're probably going to go in a different direction. The only teams I can think about are the Jags, Washington, maybe the Jets, and all those teams could address their quarterback concerns in the draft. For sure. You could even throw some teams in there with older quarterbacks, like maybe Indianapolis or the Lions, but it's still, at that point, they're not going to spend money on Cam for that. And Cam, I don't know if it, I don't know if he's going to accept another low offer. He he bet on himself this year, making a million dollars with the Patriots, hoping that he would bounce back, be great, and get a big contract. Well, if that's not available, is Cam going to take another one million dollar uh, deal? Is he going to take a backup job and hold a clipboard the way Jameis Winston's doing right now, or Andy Dalton is? I don't think so. I really don't. I think he has too much pride for that. And if he were tired, given all the injuries he's had, I don't think anybody would blame him. The way Andrew Luck did, all the injuries he had, those weren't sports injuries. His injury rap sheet looked like they looked like car accident injuries. And you know who's been in a car accident and has had a ton of injuries? Cam! And we see guys retiring earlier and earlier. So I hope I'm wrong on this. I really do, because I appreciate everything Cam's done for the state of North Carolina and for the Carolina Panthers and making the Panthers relevant. But I I subscribe to the theory, see something, say something. Be real. Detach your emotion to what you cover. And what I see right now, I think we're watching the end of Cam Newton's NFL career. You are listening to WSJS Winston-Salem, WCOG Greensboro. WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up Sports Hub Triad. Chris Patola, former Duke assistant on Coach K staff, former Army cadet, and now ESPN college basketball analyst, going to join us in 30 minutes. Look forward to catching up with Chris as we are, what, 22 days away from the start of the college basketball season? A lot to do on this election Tuesday. So glad you're spending time with us, and we hope you're well as you're listening. Josh Graham loves to talk sports. He also loves to accentuate his long lashes with mascara. You're a good-looking man. Thank you. Very pretty. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham. Man, Robert, we're on the same page today because... I was thinking, I I had a Passion Pit playlist going early on. You didn't know this. We didn't talk about this at all. Big band for me. Passion Pit. Underrated there. Big game this weekend is in South Bend. It's going to be Notre Dame hosting Clemson, of course. No Trevor Lawrence in the game. Clemson's a a five-and-a-half point favorite, which I find to be interesting considering no Trevor, even though DJ DJ Uwe Angelolai played really well last weekend. Uh, The Irish are at home. They're the number four team in the country. And somebody who knows the Irish really well now joins us, Matt Fortuna from The Athletic. So I'm just interested. Without Trevor in the lineup, do you agree with Clemson being the favorite in this game? 
I gotta say, first off, thanks for uh, leading me in with the Passion Pit song. I don't think I've heard them since college, but they were my go-to back then. <laughs> Love it. And it's been a while, so I'm in a good mood right now. Um, yeah, I agree with Clemson being the favorite. I mean, I think you know that there were some lines on DraftKings and a few other sports books um, early in the year where they would have those big game lines ahead of time, and Clemson would fluctuate anywhere between ten and fifteen, fifteen and a half point favorite depending on, you know, how both teams played that week. You know, when, when they beat Georgia Tech by 66 points and Notre Dame barely beats Louisville, that, that was on the high end. So um, I think when you look at the fact that uh, Clemson, as good as they are, will be without probably the best NFL draft prospect since at least Andrew Luck, that's got to be worth a touchdown, I would think. Uh, no disrespect to everyone else on that offense. They're all highly recruited guys who are more than capable of going in and win. Um, I, I'm not surprised the line has dropped so much, uh, but I'm also not surprised that Clemson's still a favorite. I mean, uh, they are, you know, them and Alabama are the programs in college football. They have been for, for the last five-plus years in Clemson's case. Um, and Notre Dame, uh, really, really good. I mean, maybe the best of the rest when we talk about teams that are, are annually fighting for a playoff spot but not quite there at a national championship level yet. Um, they're, they're really good, and they have the home field advantage, and they don't have to face Trevor Lawrence. So I, I think they have a real chance in this game. But, uh, you know, they haven't won a game of this magnitude since 1993 probably. So I, I'm not surprised that they're the underdogs. Shoot Matt a follow on Twitter at Matt underscore Fortuna. He joins us from The Athletic. Uh, radio, you have the opportunity to push things ahead, push the conversation ahead, and look at what games might mean if they break a certain way. If Clemson were to lose this game, or to put it another way, if Notre Dame were to win it, I look at the rest of Notre Dame's schedule on the road at Boston College, at North Carolina, Syracuse, they should walk through that game. They're in, then they're in Winston-Salem to close things out. If a top-five team acts like a top-five team and takes care of Clemson, and we assume they win the rest of the way out going to the ACC championship game, even if they face Clemson again and lose, do you think that's as close to a shoe-in as possible and uh, into getting into the college football playoff? You were tempting Satan trying to will another Boston College Notre Dame upset uh, into existence <laughs> by overlooking the Eagles uh, who play Notre Dame a week after uh, they would have beaten number one in this scenario. Jeff Halfley. happened in 1993. Uh, yeah, Jeff Halfley, uh, Glenn Foley, David Gordon, the kick uh, that, that cost Notre Dame their, their last real chance, or the chance that would have been their most recent national championship after they beat Florida State in the game of, game of the century in 1993. And there's also uh, a pretty big storyline within that this Boston College game with Phil Dracovic, uh, the, the, the transfer quarterback for Notre Dame, lighting it up for BC. So uh, that will be a juicy one regardless of what happens on Saturday. But to your point, um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you always got to look around the country and see what's happening elsewhere and um, have the committee take all that into account. It's going to be that much uh, more chaotic in a year like this one with so many postponed and canceled games with so many uneven schedules and so forth. I mean, I feel comfortable saying right now, uh, and I'm sure this won't come back to bite me, right, but I feel comfortable saying right now that the Big 12 will not be making the playoff. The Pac-12 with their seven-game schedule probably will not. The Big Ten right now is Ohio State or bust, and I think Ohio State uh, is going to have to go undefeated, and I think they'll have no problem doing that um, to get into the playoffs. So I, I think right now you, you look at uh, Alabama, um, the ACC winner, whether it's Clemson or, or, or Notre Dame, uh, Ohio State, and then there's a fourth spot. Would it be the second-best team in the, the SEC? Maybe. Would it be uh, the Notre Dame-Clemson second-game loser, assuming the other team won the first one? 
I mean, it would be hard to argue that one of those teams isn't one of the four best if we're going to determine that the other one is, right? Um, so it's an interesting dynamic. Rarely do you get a, a matchup like this one where um, it's the biggest game in Dame Stadium in the last 15 years, the biggest game since the Bush Push. It's the biggest uh, regular season game for Clemson in at least five years, and it's the, the highest-ranked matchup between two ACC programs in conference history with number one, number four. And yet we could find ourselves in a situation here where um, they play again in about six weeks in Charlotte. So uh, this will likely be uh, the first and last time DJ Uangalele play starts for Clemson against Notre Dame. You assume Trevor Lawrence will be back for the second one. So uh, you'd almost be judging them on two different games if Notre Dame were to win this one and lose the second. And I think a lot of times last impressions mean so much, and I think it would depend depend on uh, how good of a game that second game is with Trevor Lawrence in it, assuming Notre Dame wins his first one in that scenario. Matt Fukurino with us here on Sports Up Giant. I want to close with this. You talk about looking around the country, and you look at the Big 12 officially, eh, almost officially being out of it, let's say. <laughs> uh, don't want that to come back to bite me. The Pac-12, very slim odds. Haven't been in the playoffs since 16 I'm just interested in what conference you think has disappointed you the most in terms of expectations you set for them. Because the SEC has had a down year when you look at Tennessee being disappointing, Auburn being disappointing, uh, LSU, of course, falling off a cliff. And the Big Ten even right now, aside from Ohio State, I have no clue who the second best team is. Michigan, we thought might be that. And then they lose to Coach Tucker in Michigan State last weekend. The ACC has Notre Dame, so it seems like they're trending upward just by adding that type of program. Uh, which conference, though, on the other end of the spectrum has disappointed you most? You know, I understand what you're saying with the SEC, but I still think with Texas A&M and with the winner of Georgia, uh, Florida this week, you're, you're going to have three really, really good teams in that league. The Big Ten, uh, I have no problem writing them off outside of Ohio State after two weeks. I mean, I think it's been an atrocious start for them. Uh, the second-best team is probably Wisconsin, and they – will be lucky to be eligible for the Big Ten title game. At this rate, they need to play a minimum of six games, and they've already had two canceled. So, so they need to be pretty much perfect from a health and safety standpoint from here on out. Um, Penn State, I thought, coming in, it was a dark horse chance to make the playoff. They blew that in week one. And, you know, I don't think they played bad last week, but certainly the gap was illustrated between them and Ohio State. And when you see Ohio State go into uh, what's arguably their toughest game of the year and win, Fairly easily. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Penn State fought, but the game was never in doubt. Maybe the spread was, but the, the final score wasn't. The final winner wasn't. Um, I, I think Ohio State is just far and away the best team in this conference. I mean, Michigan, are you kidding me? How do you lose to Mel Tucker in Michigan State, who just lost to Rutgers uh, a week before? I mean, it's a joke. Minnesota, they were a dark horse coming in the year. Now they're 0 2. They have a lot of uh, personnel issues due, due presumably to COVID and some other things uh, that, that, that's holding them back. But there's just no one. I mean, Iowa is usually reliable for, for at least uh, a puncher's threat against anyone on any given day, and they're 0 2 right now. I mean, we're looking at a league right now where the only other 2 0 teams are Northwestern, Indiana, and Purdue. And with all due respect to those three teams, I don't think any of them are going to be in the playoff picture at the end of this year. I think only Ohio State is. And it's. Uh, been very disappointing um, after this long wait and after all the, the off-field bickering that, that led to this moment that um, the drama has been completely sucked out of uh, that Big Ten race uh, two weeks into the season. Matt, appreciate the time. Hope you're safe on this election day and that we'll be chatting sometime soon. Thanks for doing this. Likewise, Josh. Thanks for having me. You got it. He's on Twitter at Matt underscore Fortuna from The Athletic.
As promised, Robert, Bill Simmons announced he's partnering with WWE and Vince McMahon on a documentary series for Netflix uh, on Vince. And the big question that a lot of people have, whether or not it's just going to be a PR puff piece. Have you heard about this? I have. I'm very excited. Apparently, it's going to be a four-part documentary. So I don't know how much puff piece you could have in a four-part documentary. But it, it does excite me that Simmons is involved with it and not just WWE Films. A lot of people are comparing it to The Last Dance. Hey, Michael Jordan made sure that none of the Washington Wizards stuff got in there. You think there's going to be any XFL stuff in this Vince doc? Uh, I'm sure there would be XFL stuff. The stuff that I would want to know would be the steroid cases, if they're going to cover that the first time with Hogan, the second time with Benoit. I would want to know about his uh, sexual exploits, whether those are going to be in there or we're just going to be like, oh, he was a great husband to Linda. Uh, and I would want to know if they're going to have any former talent that had soured on him that haven't really changed their position on him, being Sting or Bret Hart, if they're going to include any of that stuff. Because those are the, uh, you're not going to bleep my summer up, guys, in this Vince McMahon doc. Well, Bill Simmons is a big wrestling guy. He produced um, the Andre the Giant HBO doc that was really good. Yeah, very good. The director of this is Chris Smith. Do you know what he's known for? I saw what he did, but I can't draw it now. He did the Fire Festival doc there you on go. Netflix. Yeah. So, that was really good. And they had no issue making those guys look pretty bad. Is there any chance that Vince comes off looking bad in this documentary series? Uh, with four, If it's really a four-part Doc, I would think that he would have some lowlights for sure. But I think if Vince is involved, they can't paint him no. too badly. And that's And that's the interesting piece he's and why gonna people have, are critical. He's going to have that moment at the end where he's holding the chalice laughing about how his genius created WrestleMania and this. But I think we're going to get to delve into those lower parts of his life. Will East Carolina University get even a sentence? If, Will there be a sentence? Potentially, if they include how him and Linda met, then sure. Oh, that's it. That's what I want. Do we know where they met? Yeah, at East, at East Carolina. Carol- oh, not where. Uh, oh, they man. both went to the School of Business, so I would assume somewhere in there. Oh, uh, yeah. Good we old Mendenhall. We were hanging out on the mall. Yeah, right. And I, I Don't I walk over the her. cupola, Linda. We'll be here for an extra year. What's <laughs> <laughs> that joke for? Coming up. Why I liked what I saw from Daniel Jones. I'm going to defend Daniel Jones, and I'm going to defend the Giants a bit. Oh, and we have this week's to spare for the hierarchy on a Tuesday drive. Josh Graham loves to talk sports. He also loves to daydream about sports, mostly about being the locker room towel boy. You're on the drive with Josh Graham. All right, Chris Patola now with us, former Army cadet, former Coach K assistant at Duke, now ESPN college basketball analyst. And since it's election day, I'm going to ask you to reveal what your ballot is. Oh, no, not that ballot, Chris Patola. I'm talking about the ACC men's basketball ballot that we received earlier today. Uh, About 15 minutes ago, I shared how I was seeing the ACC this year, and at the very top... This entire offseason, I was going back and forth on Virginia and Duke, but we caught up with uh, Leonard Hamilton not too long ago, and he made sure 
his words still stick with me at the very end of the conversation. Josh, don't count out the Seminoles. And I hear a lot about Scotty Barnes, and I'm I'm starting to become a believer. But when you look at the top of the ACC going into the year, who do you view as a front runner? I mean, I think Virginia has to be. You said it. I, I think they have to be to me at at the top. And you know, I don't know if they have anybody you know outside of maybe Hauser, you know, who who would be a first team candidate, uh, but. I'll tell you what. I mean, they they've got all those guys back. We know that uh, we know how well they're coached and 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 their house their style imposes its will on a game. I mean, I it, it'd be hard pressed to look past them. Um, you know, look, we know Duke is going to be talented, Josh, as as they they typically are. I don't know how that manifests, um, and and it sucks. I haven't even been been able. To, I haven't even been able to see them uh, in person because of all the COVID and, and whatnot. So it's hard to gauge, to give you an honest assessment outside of what I, I've seen on tape and on paper. Um, I think, look, Carolina's going to be good. I think Louisville is, is going to be good. I think those young players, uh, I think David Johnson has a real shot at making first team all ACC. I, I think he's going to have a big time year. Um, and then you said it, like Florida State, man, you know, outside of, you mentioned Scotty Barnes, outside of him, um, just in talking to Leonard, over the summer, I, I think MJ Walker has has even gotten better. I think Wacon Gray is is a, is a matchup problem. Um, I think he has slimmed down a little bit and has gotten better. Uh, so at the very least, their their first five is is going to be better. So I I think overall, Josh, I think the league is going to play better this year than it did last year. Who do you think's the best player in the league? Because I start leaning Scotty Barnes based on the things people in the basketball community are saying about him, the hype that's starting to build with him? You know, it's an interesting question because, you know, like you kind of almost have to couch it in terms of most talented or best player. If I had one guy that I would want to take to start ACC play with, to start this season within league, it would be Garrison Brooks. Uh, You know, nobody in this league is more experienced uh, than Garrison Brooks. Uh, I, I would I would take a senior again. I'm not saying he's the best pro prospect. I'm not saying he's the most talented. But in terms of, I'm, I'm going to start with that guy and approach the season. Um, I would take Garrison Brooks. I think he learned a lot from last season. I think he's he's chomping at the bit to get going. Um, so I would I would probably take him. Uh, and then I would take you know again. I know these freshmen are good without having seen them. Uh, you kind of only go off of what you hear. Uh, I've seen tape on Scotty Barnes. Uh, he's certainly talented. Uh, but I'll tell you the other guy, Josh, is David Johnson. Uh, I think he only scratched the surface, and he got much better late in the year last year. Um, but he's got. He reminds me. He's not Magic Johnson, but he's got a real flair to his game, a lot like Magic does. He's got tremendous size for the position. Really good passer. Really good feel. Uh, was hurt, if folks will remember, he was hurt uh, at the beginning of last season, so he kind of had to work his way into the year um, with a full, albeit in COVID, with a full off season and, and a full preseason. I, I think he's poised to have a really good year. So I would probably put him you know, right below that, that Garrison Brooks uh, pick that I had. He was very frustrating to me last year talking about David Johnson because you note the injury and you can just see it in spurts. I was at the game in Cameron sitting there courtside and I just remember trying looking at John Shire and Nolan Smith on the Duke bench next to Coach K 
trying to figure out answers. They had the the uh, the the blackboard out, and they're trying to figure that out. The dry erase board, I mean, and uh, just so frustrated because he couldn't. They couldn't stop him from getting to the basket. There was also the Georgia Tech game on the road that stands out as well. Chris Spatola is with us here. Follow him on Twitter if you haven't already at Chris underscore Spatola. But since you bring up Garrison Brooks. I'm interested in what you make of this North Carolina roster because, of course, expectations are always going to be high for the Tar Heels, but it seems a lot is being put on the plate of Leaky Black again, who's being expected to do more than play perimeter defense, which he's really good at. Uh, He needs to be more of a playmaking guy, it seems. Uh, And then, once again, they're relying on a ton of freshmen, the entire backcourt. I don't know who the best shooter on this North Carolina team is. It's a big question I have. When you look at this roster, what's the biggest question mark you have going into the year? Well, it, it, it's how can you employ that front line? And, you know, we're, the, the game of basketball is a sport now that's not, um, you know, it, it's not conducive to playing a front line like they're going to have uh, offensively. But Carolina has been historically, as you know, is as good as anybody, and they're always going to play two bigs, and they're as good as anybody in employing uh, that type of size on a front line. Um, so the question is, how does that manifest? I mean, look, Garrison Brooks is 6'9", Baycott 6'10". That's a really good starting point. I would imagine that they're going to be, you know, again, an outstanding offensive rebounding team. Um, I would imagine uh, that they're going to play through those guys uh, and try to play a little bit more inside out. The problem is 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 not necessarily, um, you know, sort of being able to employ that size. It's can you keep people honest? Like they did not shoot the basketball real well last year, and I think that's going to be a similar issue this year. Which again, are you able to uh, are you able to employ that type of a front line? I think Black will be better, but again, Black is only going to be so good. I mean, there's only so much that Leaky Black is going to be able to do as as a basketball player. Um, is Caleb, you know, is Caleb Love the real deal? You know, how how does his play manifest? And then again, look, college basketball is not a sport where freshmen can't play anymore. I mean, that that those days of looking at a roster full of freshmen and saying, all right, well, this this is about a year or two in the waiting, that's no longer the case, obviously. But which of those guys are are guys who who come in and, and can make an impact? So, you know, that's why I, I don't have them quite there with the Virginias and you know, the Florida States and the Dukes and the Louisvilles quite yet, just because I don't really know without having seen them in person yet. I don't exactly know, okay, this is the guy you really got to keep an eye on. We'll see. There is a lot of talent there, but how that manifests will be will be interesting early in the year. Last week, we heard from Coach K at his press conference, and he was talking about the frustration there not being much of a backup plan if something should go wrong for the NCAA tournament. And some of the frustrations he's had for a very long time now when it comes to the leadership structure of the sport, him pushing for a college basketball commissioner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm interested if you've had any conversations with Mike about the season coming up and some of the concerns coaches are having in the community aside from the obvious of, hey, if somebody tests positive and they're out two weeks, how can you feasibly have a basketball season? under that structure. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't talked to him about his recent comments. It's hard keeping track of all of them. I, I did call him, Josh, when the ACC coaches that were, were voting to make it an all-inclusive tournament. I, I did call him about that because I, 
before I went on the air and started blasting it, I wanted to at least get it from him exactly what his thought process was. You know, with respect to his most recent comments, I didn't quite understand his point about the maximum number of games. Like every coach I've talked to over the last three weeks, the, the problem, the concern they have is getting to the minimum of 13 games, you know, with the contact tracing. Like the, the thing they all say is I, getting to 13 given the CDC guidelines and, and given what the ACC and the NCAA is, is telling us we're going to have to do contact tracing-wise, it's going to be really difficult getting to 13 games. Now, here's, here's where I do agree with Coach K in, in what he was saying the other day. That we were so locked in to using this cookie-cutter cutter formula on how a season is supposed to go. Like, they approached it the, the way in which you would a normal season, which is to say – MTEs, non-conference to begin the season, then you get into conference play, and then you have an NCAA tournament. And there was no way that any of that was going to work. And how do I know that? Well, we sat back in August, and we looked at what, co- what happened to college football. When decisions started to have it, had to be made, they started to need to be made, what happened? All of the conferences fractured. They all went their separate ways and said, we're going to do this the way that we want to do. Well, back then, us college basketball folks looked at it and said, well, we have the advantage of time. We, we now have the opportunity to sit back, to look at the mistakes that college football's made, to be unified in how we approach a season. We have the gift of time. Well, here you and I sit on November 3rd, and schools are still trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do. And what have we seen? These conferences, and one of the reasons the MTEs have, have broken up, uh, at least the ESPN one, is that these conferences said, well, we're not going to do it that way, and we're going to do it this way, and they've all gone their separate ways. And so what really frustrates me is that with all of that time we had and all of the lessons learned, college basketball still tried to approach this as if it were a regular season. And I think you know that's the one thing Coach K was saying that I agree with. We had to look at this differently. So if the conferences were going to do their own thing, then you had to say, look, let's get our conference schedules in. Whenever the season starts, I, I think starting at November 25th was, uh, 25th was a bad decision. We stu- should have just kept the November 10th, allowed the conferences to do their thing, have your conference schedule, tell teams what they're going to need to do to play in an NCAA tournament, and forget all the other non-conference MTE stuff. I, for some reason... We should have reverse engineered it, and we tried going about it in the normal way, and, and that's why we're sitting here in the position we're in right now. Chris Patola, ESPN, with us on Sports Hub Triad. I want to close things out on a positive and uh, relevant note. As an Army guy, I'm interested in what today represents for you. People think of the democratic process. They think of the election. Um, it goes uh, it goes uh, toe-for-toe with... Uh, this idea of patriotism and what makes America great. What does it mean to you as somebody who served, and on top of that, I mean, you know, war army across your chest? Well, I'll tell you what it means to me, Josh. I'm glad you asked that because I think it's very important. I think perspective is very important. In 2005, I was a young captain and I was in Iraq. And on January 30th, 2005, the Iraqis held their first free and fair election in 50 years. They had you know, lived under an authoritarian in Saddam Hussein, and they did not have the right to vote. 
In 2005, the U.S. Army, and I was there, we oversaw the first election held there, first free and fair election held there in over 50 years. And look, security was an issue, and we were there to provide it. There was not a shot fired that day at a polling place or at a place where the Iraqis voted. And I will tell you to a T, Josh, I had a number of them. Whatever you think of the war, again, I had my own feelings about it. Were, uh, that's not my point. My point is when you look those people in the eye who were finally afforded the opportunity to vote and, and you hear their backstories and, and what happened to family members and what, what it meant to them to have the opportunity to participate in whatever that government was going to be. It made you grateful to live in a country where you are automatically afforded that right, as long as you're 18 years of age. You are automatically afforded the right to participate in a free and fair election. Now, what disappoints me is that 15 years after my being there and seeing that election take place and everything that went into that election to make sure it was safe and fair, the fact that we have on both sides people questioning the efficacy of our election, the United States election, and that we have people whose votes are in some areas being suppressed, I think is, is it's really a shame. And so that's what it means to me, because I've seen it firsthand, a population of people who were not afforded the right to vote. And by the way, a majority in that country who were Sunni, who lived under, you know, a, a or rather a, a, a Shia population who were the majority under a Sunni uh, dictator. And again, I'm not speaking in religion. I'm speaking about a majority of people who had to live under an oppressive government who were finally afforded the right to vote and what it meant to those people. We take it for granted. And, and so that's what today means to me. I voted. Uh, I have tried to. My kids are young, but I've tried to engage them in the process. Um, and I think the fact that NCAA athletes, uh, you know, back to the college athletic perspective, the fact that athletes have off today, I don't give a crap what any of these football coaches are bitching and complaining about. They, had, they put out statement after statement after George Floyd's murder, and, and now they're going to complain about a day off uh, during this election. I think it's ridiculous. So the fact that these athletes have off, I think, is a testament to, to the process, um, and it's worthy of election day. So that that's what I think about it and I appreciate you asking, Josh. If you're hearing our voices right now and you haven't voted and you're registered, it's not too late. They can still um, receive your vote and if that plea and that description isn't enough to get you out, well, I don't know what is. Chris Patola, appreciate your insight. Appreciate your service. Appreciate what you do for ESPN and college basketball. I hope we can catch up sometime soon. Absolutely, Josh. Good to talk to you, brother. Got it. That's Chris Spatola. Shoot him a follow on Twitter at Chris underscore Spatola. Robert, that really does put it in perspective, doesn't it? We've Yeah, very passionate. I we, enjoyed that. We have for you know, we, we don't talk politics. We we know it's a an intense day. We know it's a pressure packed day. But I said this on IG Live, and I feel the same exact way. Don't let the results tonight dictate the behavior, your behavior towards other people. Not everything has to be so existential. You know? Don't don't let politics infiltrate your 
your behavior, the way you treat others, the viewpoint you have of people that surround you based on if you know who they voted for, just just don't let that happen because I don't ever remember a time where who who you voted for mattered as much as it does right now in terms of how people view you, which is a shame because I know there are people in sports media. I know there are people, uh, I mean, there are people that I know left and right that probably are going to vote um, for the president and are afraid to say so because they're, they're afraid of backlash and they're afraid, you know, and, and vice versa in some circles, you know, and that that's a shame because I never really remembered it being that way. So I'm glad that this is the end of the election cycle. I am. But to quote what Mitch Album had to say, great sports writer for the Detroit Free Press is a Hall of Famer, I believe, with the NSMA. If not, he should be. He, uh, the, the election results are, will be meaningless if we don't worry about how we treat each other. The results won't matter if we don't focus on that fact and how to coexist with one another, regardless of what your political opinion is. I, I really don't care what it is. Just make sure you go vote and have your voice heard because everybody's so quick to complain about things. But you can't really complain, in my view, if you don't play a part in our democratic process. So I think I read, Robert, that the because of some morning difficulties that they've pushed back the call time for election uh, sites 45 minutes today. So I think you have till 7.30, 7.45 to go out and vote. If you hear my voice right now and you're registered to vote, do it. You'll feel better about yourself. You got and, care, and I don't care. And I'm not doing the thing where I'm telling you to vote and telling you to vote a specific way. I, really, vote what direction you want the country to go in one way or the other. And, you know, I'm just your everyday friendly uh, sports sports radio host. That's what I am. Um, and the thing that would make me most happy today is seeing that North Carolina has a record turnout. That's what would make me most happy. Even more happy than if things go the way that I voted, which you don't know and it's none of your business to know. I would be more happy if I knew that it was a record turnout for North Carolina because then regardless if it falls in line with the way I voted, I know that it's representative of this state. It's representative of the views of the people. That's what I want. Well, you should be happy then because the with our, the early voting and mail-in voting, it's already double what voted last year. That's so. fantastic. Or last cycle? Yeah. Okay. 